anonymity is like core to blockchain in general. And my argument usually is that's not actually true. Like nothing about anonymity needs to exist to make the blockchain work. You know, and I think a lot of people actually have that misconception that like, oh, blockchain is about being anonymous. And it's like, well, no, it's actually like a public immutable ledger, which is like almost the exact opposite of being anonymous. It just happens that like you're using this 42 character string that nobody else knows. But like whatever you do with that lives on the blockchain for as long as a blockchain is still around. You know, as long as someone's running a blockchain node, that data still exists. Welcome to Behind the Product, a podcast by SCP, where we believe it takes more than a great idea to make a great product. We've been around for over 30 years, building software that matters more. And we've set out to explore the people, practices, and philosophies to try and capture what's behind great software products. So join us on this journey of conversation with the folks that bring ideas to life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Whether you're new to the Web3 space, have deep cuts, or you're like me and recently dipped your toes in, this is a great show for you. Drew Beachler, the CEO at Holder, joined SEP's CEO and myself in a great chat that left us with a new view of the space. Holder has taken an interesting position on the presumed anonymity of blockchain and carved out a unique product in the CRM and marketing automation world. Drew shares some things with us that really have surprised him and his thoughts on what's needed in order for mass adoption of Web3 tech. And really quick before we dive in, I really appreciate everybody taking time to listen to our show. I have a quick ask, and I hate to do this, but if you think one person might enjoy this show, my ask is that you consider sharing it with them. And no worries if not, another way you could help is feedback, which I love. So if you have any for me, it's really helpful to hear. You can hit me up at podcast at scp.com. All right, enough of that. Let's dive in. Hope you enjoy. It still feels like I have read about and invested in cryptocurrencies. I've read about NFTs. I feel like I have a basic understanding, 30,000 foot overview of what blockchain technology does. I am not to the depth that Raman is, and I'm sure you, and it seems like it's hard to get the average consumer to get their level of understanding up to the point where they can conceptually understand what it is you're even talking about. So maybe as a quick baseline, because you will probably do a better job than I will of explaining like, what is Holder? Like, what are you guys doing? What's the product? What are you guys trying to go after in the marketplace? So just kind of like level set anybody listening to this that's never heard of you guys. Yeah, happy to. So Holder, we're based in Indianapolis. We're a small SaaS startup. And we are, we call it a customer engagement platform. So we specifically work with brands, creators, anyone whose customer is a wallet address. So that could be like, a protocol that is issuing an actual token. It could be an NFT project, could be Coinbase, you know, who like I have customers and they interact with me through their wallet address. We work with any of those companies that have access to some of that data. And we are a CRM and marketing tech platform to help them engage with those customers. The problem that we originally saw as kind of crypto has exploded as particularly like this, I call it Web3 use case, which is also kind of a buzzword, but we can kind of get down that too. But like as the Web3 use case kind of proliferated in terms of 
people were interacting online, kind of that just like the amount of customer data that then lived on a blockchain and kind of how you engage with those customers has become really, really difficult. A wallet address is a typically a 42 character anonymous address. Some people might have you know domains attached to their wallet address and there might be some kind of public information, but for the most part, yeah, I have no idea who that customer is. And so as marketers at heart, like you know, I've been in marketing for over a decade or so now, and and I have no way of communicating to them. You know, they could be like my most loyal customer, spending millions of dollars with me, and I have no way to engage with them because this is all decentralized. It's all interoperable. I mean, they might not even be like actually on my website interacting with my product. They might be interacting with their with my product in a completely interoperable use case. And so that's where like we've kind of focused on like how do we help those brands engage with their customers. We've built out this Web3 messaging layer where you can send messages directly to a wallet address and kind of trying to build out essentially this kind of new communication channel directly to wallet addresses and kind of what are the marketing use cases, what are the customer loyalty kind of brand building use cases related to that. Can you say more about that messaging approach? Is that using an existing messaging protocol like patients or email, or is it something custom that you've built? So next week, one of the founders who's joining us for this panel that we're doing at Rally Conference next week is a guy named Shane Mack. And he's the CEO of a company called XMTP Labs. And XMTP actually built a network and protocol for Web3 messaging. And it's kind of somewhere in between SMS and email from like a messaging protocol perspective in terms of like, you know, what's handled at the protocol level versus what's handled at the client level. But that's been like their goal is building a messaging layer for Web3. It's fully interoperable. You log in with your wallet. And so we actually have partnered with them and we're kind of integrated on top of their messaging protocol. And then we just do the like one to many, or if I want to personalize that message or automate that message that when someone buys my NFT, trigger that message automatically that goes out to their wallet address and kind of how do I programmatically send these messages. So it's actually a completely new kind of communication channel built in kind of a Web3 native way. Like is your target customer a tech company building, working in Web3 technologies, or could it be SEP that, you know, is using HubSpot as our CRM and or Salesforce or whomever, and you might displace our existing CRM and marketing platform? Yeah. Today, our main customer are Web3 native companies, probably not in, in SEP today. I think like there is a future, like the bull case for Web3 messaging as a whole and for holder is like, there's a future where that's a whole new communication channel, a whole new marketing audience, you know, acquisition channel. Oh, and it just so happens like someone's wallet address is also tied to a lot of this other financial metadata, you know what I mean? That I know how much Ethereum they hold in their wallet as well. And so I think there is a future where that's a very massive opportunity to kind of go after just how like other kinds of messaging channels have evolved over the last handful of decades, you know, from email to SMS, which I feel like has had kind of a revolution over the last five years, even especially with like Clavio and Attentive and those that are doing more like marketing-based messaging using SMS, you know, WhatsApp messaging, even like iMessage, kind of the rich iMessage style, like, you know, you've seen kind of an evolution of messaging. I think there is a world where like Web3 messaging, kind of wallet-based messaging could be something like that. And definitely at that point, any company that wants to engage with a customer at their wallet address could be a potential customer of ours. But kind of our niche right now is focusing more on 
marketers, growth leaders, product managers at more of these Web3 native companies. One of the things I was curious is, I've, you know, I've got a 30,000 foot lens looking at this, not a deep understanding. And some of it is still, you know, hard for me to grasp. And I'm thinking like, man, there's got to be such a barrier that Holder has to explain the benefit of some of this, some of their product to their customers. But it sounds like if you're working with somebody that's steeped in this technology, they kind of get it for the most part and they can see the benefit. Yeah, that's the goal at least is, yeah, go after some of the people that kind of already inherently get the technology more and that it's an easier sell. And I think the growth five, 10 years out, you know, in the longer term is how can we win over some of your typical e-commerce marketer that wants to send promotional messages to someone's wallet address as well or something like that. You know, what are some of the, I'll say more successful B2C Web3 technology companies that exist today? What are they, how are people monetizing this technology that you're seeing? I think there's a handful of different routes I go to, especially like on like consumer experience side of things. So one is there's a really interesting Web3 social media platform called Lens. And they've built it kind of protocol first. And it's like Twitter on Web3 is like, or X, you know, uh, but you know, <laughs> Twitter, X, whatever. Um, I think it's still Web3. called tweeting. I don't think it's called Xing yeah, anymore. Xing, so uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you call it X spaces? Yeah. Or, I don't know. <laughs> a little bit of an identity crisis, but you know, it's, it's like from a feature perspective, it's a feed, it's profiles, it's I follow people, you know, I post, I can like repost comment on those posts. It's, you know, Twitter, but everything uh, database that it runs on instead of running on some internal database is all on a blockchain. Specifically, it's all on the Polygon blockchain even. And so like, this is like a really interesting kind of consumer use case. And so even like they've built the protocol layer and now similar to Blue Sky even too, and like some of kind of like the decentralized social platforms you're starting to see, there are a number of different clients that are built on top of Lens. And so there's one called Orb that's a mobile first client. There's one called Lenster that's more of a web-based kind of first client. There's a handful that are like just focused on video or like specific types of posts, you know what I mean? And all these kind of clients building really bespoke experiences. And so there's like an interesting thing around what they're doing that I love from a consumer perspective too, is because like back to like the whole value of a blockchain to me is like, you know, it has core tenets of a blockchain is really just a database that's public, immutable. And like, it has this nature of like, it's meant to be permissionless and trustless. You know, I don't have to trust the other party on the end of this transaction because I trust the code doesn't have a bug in it. You know what I mean? And so like, this is going to work because the program works, you know, programmable money in the same way, like lens is all built on the same kind of tenets, which is really interesting. And because of that, you have really unique incentive structures, you know, when you have complete control over and kind of interoperability in like the underlying database. And so they built a lot of really cool, unique ways around being able to collect other people's posts and, you know, how they make revenue and they share the revenue streams back, you know, and Twitter is kind of starting to do some of this now too, but this was like the, from when Lynn started, like that was the whole idea. And in many ways, like it is, you know, you sign in with your wallet, you have to claim an NFT that's technically your like user name and handle. But like a lot of that could kind of be obfuscated out actually. And like the end consumer just thinks they're signing up for a Twitter competitor, but it's a social media network where I can create content. I can make that content, you know, I can make money on that content. 
I can build kind of relationships in a really unique way. And so there's some of those kinds of use cases that, and granted, these are just like taking a Web2 application and kind of putting it on a blockchain and kind of what are the unique aspects of that. But I think that there's still some really, really fun and really interesting and kind of how do you 10x the consumer experience? Like there's some of that, especially around incentive design and kind of programmatic ways to interact with like the protocol, which I think is super, super interesting. It almost feels a little bit like, okay, we have this cool technology. There's maybe some interesting things we could do with it, but it's like, I haven't seen a really compelling, like what's the pain that could be solved by Web3 tech? It still feels a little bit like, okay, let's go see what it can do. And maybe that'll, that'll come out at some point. I don't know. Do you feel like the industry's still a little soft in that way? There's definitely areas of like, you know, light at the end of the tunnel around like kind of where it's, where it's heading and definitely some that like, I would say are, there is like real world use case predominantly, you know, so the Bitcoin white paper was written in like 2008, I think. So, you know, we are 15 years post kind of creation of that. And like the last 13 has been primarily around like financial innovation, you know what I mean? And more like crypto as an industry using blockchain technology has been like, you know, all very financial kind of oriented and around like innovation in the fintech stack. There's definitely like, I understand a lot of value kind of being created in that perspective and like, you know, benefits from borderless payments to like very short kind of processing time and things like that. Personally, that's, I'm not quite as just interested in those kind of use cases. And so I think like this idea of like, I think that's even like the term web three kind of people are trying to kind of use or build a brand around is like the blockchain based applications that aren't financial innovation oriented or fintech oriented. And it's more around like consumer applications and like how do consumers kind of, how can you build really unique consumer applications on top of that? And I think that is kind of where like, we're definitely trying to find some of those, you know, what's the 10X experience that makes the consumer experience much better. And we're seeing some of it. I think today, a lot of the use cases revolve around ownership and like that is unique in this. And back to like the lens example, like you own the profile, you know, you own the data, literally it's creating NFTs that are immutable on a blockchain and like they belong to the wallet address that owns that profile. And it all kind of feels in the background, but like that data and is why it's on an interoperable and I can use the Orb app or I can log into the Lenster app and all of my data is still there. I can take it with me. So I think there's a lot of like really unique use cases around this like ownership aspect of you own the assets that you're kind of engaging with and creating on the blockchain. Like that's really unique. And I think there's a lot too around some of like the, you know, those are related, like the interoperableness of it as well. So back to like, even like the messaging side of things, like we've built our messaging application on top of the XMTP protocol. And it's an interoperable inbox that they work with Coinbase wallet. And they also work with a handful of others, but like I log into my Coinbase wallet inbox and the same exact messages show up that are also in my orb, you know, DMs inbox. So I think there's a lot of unique innovation too around the interoperability and like the, the unique things you can do with that, with a, when interoperableness, interoperability is built into the like protocol. You can do some pretty cool you know, things. There's some yeah. pretty cool things there. That's always a challenge with every like new technology with any new startup and everything is the like, you have the, I mean, we struggle with this a lot personally of 
you have the that's interesting challenge, you know, <laughs> of like people think it's really cool, you know, that's really interesting, but it's like now I need you to bring out your checkbook, you know, um, and that's kind of like the rubber hits the road of like, is it interesting or is it like solve a problem that you want to pay for, you know? And yeah, we, we were kind of like, I think moving more into that direction now, especially as like, there's not just like free money floating around in crypto quite as much. And like, it's, it's not, some of the attention has gone away from like, I am in it to make a lot of money kind of quickly and less of like an investment perspective and more on the like experience perspective. I think people are really, the builders that are still in the space right now, I think are really pushing on those hard, you know, because they wouldn't be here if they were just in it still to make a quick buck, I feel. It's an interesting study in consumer behavior. From one perspective, we're all giving away our content all day. We, we give all of these platforms our content. We give up our privacy in so very many ways, right? And so, you know, barely eke it back with a little bit of protection from a vendor who's also trying to get your data. And these technologies, like they are a way to solve that, but they are today inconvenient. So how much inconvenience are you willing to live with to protect your data, to have more privacy or not? And, and the anecdotal evidence is not much. We haven't had, so it's going to take a killer app or it's going to take something that like really tips the masses. But once it tips, then I wonder about the opportunities for Web3. Like when my digital identity is not about usernames and passwords and cookies, and it's about a wallet address and what I choose to reveal and, and so on, then could have a really interesting thing. Like just, it's hard to predict the future. It's hard to know who will, who will, if anybody successfully tip that over. Oh yeah, I, I completely agree. It's really tough. And I think there's, there's a lot of people too over the last, I don't know, 12 to 18 months that a lot of, on the kind of more technical side of things, I've been doing a lot of work around like, how do we make this much more kind of mainstream consumer friendly? So like one thing, one thing if you if you all aren't familiar and, and maybe kind of the audience might not all be for sure is around, there's a lot of, I call them account abstraction, but like email-based wallets basically. And it feels very much just like two-factor authentication. So there's a really big company called Magic that does this. There's another one called Crossmint and lots and lots of others. But basically they do MPC and kind of like wallet management for you. So if I wanted to, my customers to log in with a wallet, but I didn't want them to actually need a crypto wallet, you can let them log in with their email address. I put in drew at holder.xyz. I hit create account. It's going to fire off an email to me with a two-factor code. And essentially that is just kind of a verification key to access my private crypto wallet keys that live on the back end of this technology provider like a magic. And so like to the end consumer, I'm just logging in and I'm getting a link. It's a passwordless login. But what's happening on the back end is it's actually spinning up a wallet address for you, storing the private keys. Like I don't have access to the private keys or the 12 word seed phrase that I have to write down and secure in some you know special place. It's just like logging in with an email address. But on the back end, I have this wallet address. I can collect tokens and things like that through it. I can log in. It feels like a login. And so there's a lot of, I'd say, especially bigger brand activations that are like, that's the way that they kind of all crypto lists with a Web3. It's a Web2 front end with a Web3 back end, basically. Starbucks is probably like the most popular has done this. They have a new loyalty program called Odyssey. You actually sign in with your existing, like OAuth with your existing Starbucks login. They create on the back end a Polygon wallet for you. But like my experience is just 
on this new Odyssey loyalty program. I have all of these different journey campaigns of like, you know, the similar to their normal loyalty program of buy two flat whites. Yeah. And you get stars. Similar thing of like you get points. If you complete these journeys, then you like collect these stamps. The stamps are actually NFTs. The points are actually kind of like on chain. And so the beauty of it then too is like I own these stamps. There's an open marketplace. Like if you wanted to go and resell these stamps because they give you access to certain things. Sometimes I can still be a little bearish on that use case because it's still like, I think it's super cool, but I think it's super cool because I'm a crypto and Web3 nerd. So I think, oh, this is cool because on the back end is like Web3. But I mean, like Starbucks is, the reason Starbucks is doing it is their loyalty program is costs a ridiculous amount of money to upkeep. And this is actually a much cheaper way to manage a loyalty program because they're not even paying the infrastructure and like the database costs to manage it because it's all on Polygon's database, you know quote unquote. But those are some of the experiences where like, I think it's interesting. I think we'll start to see more and more of those, especially like if you're not going after a crypto native consumer audience, that you can start to obfuscate out some of that in the back end where like the end consumer has no idea, you know, in the same way that I don't know what yeah, language Twitter is written in or, you know, what do you, do you know the use. Do you know your home IP address? Yeah. Um, no, yeah. yeah that we've obfuscated these things away because they're they're unnecessary and unhelpful and, and a barrier to explaining to my mom how to set up email or something. Right. But for some reason, I, I don't know, for some reason we repeat these patterns in technology of like, no, we got to be purists. This is crypto. This is not your keys, not your coins. You know, we can't talk in that way. So so let me keep going with the, with the like, why is it like that kind of questions. I was thinking about what you're doing with Holder. And it's kind of a classic story of marketing. Like I need to understand my customer and I want to interact with them. And also this is crypto and I don't want you to know who I am. And it's sort of built into the ethos, at least of the, the sort of the hardcore, it's like completely anathema to the idea. So how do you square that up? How do you resolve that? Sometimes people, and I thought you were going to say this, but you didn't, but sometimes people will say even like anonymity is like core to blockchain in general. And my argument usually is well, it's not actually true. Like nothing about anonymity needs to exist to make the blockchain work. You know, and I think a lot of people actually have that misconception that like, oh, blockchain is about being anonymous. And it's like, well, no, it's actually like a public immutable ledger, which is like almost the exact opposite of being anonymous. It just happens that like you're using this 42 character string that nobody else knows. But like whatever you do with that lives on the blockchain for as long as a blockchain is still around, you know, as long as someone's running a blockchain node, that data still exists. And so there's some interesting kind of dichotomy there of like, and I think that's why people have been very anonymous, you know, on the blockchain, because it's all public. And, you know, if I know your wallet address, I know how like financially, how much money and things like that is in like the wallet address. And so people have taken very like an anonymous, pseudonymous steps in that world. I think the way that we kind of talk about it and think about it is there's an identity layer though too around web three and like around wallet address where like I have social credibility and provability based on like the things that I'm involved in, like with my wallet address, you know, I can prove that I was a fan of X artist or whoever it is, because you can go back and look at the transaction log and see I was there when kind of thing. And so I think there's like, because of that, we've seen people building like identities around their wallet addresses too. And so there is a, it's called ENS, it stands for Ethereum name service. And they are basically a 
redirector for a wallet address. I can give my wallet address a human readable name the same way that we use DNS for holder.xyz to resolve to some IP address, you know, of where I'm hosting my website or whatever. So like my wallet address is drewbeachler.eth. And kind of just from that perspective, like we started to see from an identity perspective and granted, like that's my like main wallet that I hold the things that are kind of like public facing about me and how do I kind of have this persona or whatever, or the things that I like, but I could also certainly have tons of wallets that are completely anonymous, you know what I mean? And kind of don't interact with the outside world at all and, and things like that. But the way that I think about from like a brand perspective is they will have an address that they want to kind of engage with you as the brand with. So like my drewbeachler.eth is probably the one that I want to engage with brands the most. And like the thing that I come back to as well is this is a world that's completely transparent at least. So when I connect a wallet address to a website or I give some brand my wallet address, I am knowingly giving them the information in that wallet. Like I know the information that I'm giving them in the cookie based kind of world that we live in today and all the other systems. I go to acme.com and load up everything in my cart and I have no idea, you know, what cookies have followed me to that website when I make that purchase, where else they're sending my data. And so I think there's like this level of transparency where like it is a hurdle to get over, but it's because it's so transparent that you know that you're giving up this data. And so I think it kind of puts the onus back on the brand almost to like make it worth it, you know, like make it worth me giving you my information, you know. I care enough. And for the brand, like you're going to have people that actually care about you and care about, you know, getting your messages or updates or being part of your community or whatever, if they're giving you that information, like it's one step closer to being a real customer, I guess. And so those are some of the things that we definitely like work with clients every day around. How do I think about this? How do I message this to my customers? How do I, you know, think about this in kind of a data privacy kind of ethical perspective and how do I think about this from like a GDPR compliance perspective yeah. as well? I think about, you know, gaining consent. There's a lot there that kind of unravels very quickly. But but that's where I kind of view of I think there's an opportunity to make marketing, brand relationships, you know, more transparent. There's a future where all of that might live on chain too. And I have an interoperable, decentralized way that I manage who has access to my data. You know, how do we make that very consumer friendly, big hurdle, but there's some ways where I think, you know, back to the programmability of like the underlying technology that it sits on, there's some really cool things you could do with it too, to make the incentive structure aligned. I like that, that core idea, like this is a more honest relationship between the brand and the consumer. Yeah. Because and, and like, it's all there. Yeah. You can see everything that's happening. My wife was complaining about this over the weekend of um, our kid just upgraded to the next size of car seat, which is, you know, a big purchase. But like we purchased the car seat now. And on the same platform that we purchased the car seat, we're still getting ads for, you know, other car seats and stuff like that. But it's like, yeah, you should know. I already made my purchase. This is, you know, the largest <laughs> retailer uh, ever, you know, right now. And it's like, you know, this, you have all this data, you know. Um, and so there's also this element of like, I would love as a consumer sometimes to like raise or unraise my hand of like, hey, I'm in like the market, send me all your deals, yeah, you know, or like, yeah. hey, like. And I now have met my need. Yeah, I am not in the market anymore. There are certain products that you can't challenge or sale somebody into buying. I would imagine a child's car seat is one of them. 
hey, I don't even have kids and I'm getting ads for car seats. Like, why are you targeting me? That's a really interesting point because it's like we've normalized this human societal aspect of opting into giving away all of my human behavior, desire, everything, every time we sign up for anything free. And yet there's now a barrier to normalize taking control, kind of what I'm hearing, like taking control of I'm going to give you this piece of information and I'm going to control to some degree what you have access to. That's kind of an interesting conundrum. You know, one of the things I'm kind of curious from both of you, since you're, you're both steeped in this more than I am, the question in my mind is like, what has to change in society? I'm going to ask you to reach your crystal balls to enable some of the mass adoption of this technology, to enable people, uh, the average consumer that is tech savvy to the point of their iPhone, maybe not necessarily to product development, to adopt and get comfortable with this kind of engagement with, with brands. And Drew, to your point, what do you guys think? Back to what we were saying earlier, like the process of owning or managing a wallet like needs to be as easy as, you know. Is my wallet sitting yeah, right here on my phone? Your wallet <laughs> yeah. in, in your iPhone or feeling like, you know, two-factor authentication with a Twitter account, you know what I mean, or whatever, whenever you kind of go through that process, like super simple, super easy. I think that is is really key. And there's some like, this, this is more on the technical side too, but like related to that how do we help manage the risk and like fear, I think as well, because the not your keys, not your crypto kind of mentality. And, you know, and, and like back to like the core tenets of like what the blockchain was, was like to not need a bank to keep your money safe. You know what I mean? And so because of that, like you are your own bank and like that whole mentality and like, it's great because it does open up a lot of win opportunities and windows for like ownership and things like that. But like, when you are talking about like financial assets, the vast majority of us probably are not good banks. You know what I mean? Of like protecting money or private keys and things like that. So I think there's a lot of like more, and this, this is kind of the consumer experience side of like, how do we remove a lot of those barriers and make that as simple as owning an iPhone or as simple as, you know, logging into any kind of other account without this like fear that I'm going to lose all of yeah. my money. Because you don't want to put all your cash in, under the mattress. Like that's that's not what we're advocating for either because one fire and oh, you lose everything uh, or one robbery, right? But yeah, yeah. this idea of taking control. Yeah, <laughs> that is exactly like the, the, the challenge and the analogy. And I think too, though, as we start to kind of decouple again more, like less of the financial like use cases and the like, consumer, you know, application use cases, like there will be less need of the things in that wallet actually are not. I own them. They're meaningful to me, but they're worthless, you know, not monetarily kind of major value. So I think there's there's some interesting things kind of there too. But I think a lot of it is around the consumer experience. And I think, you know, crypto has gone through cycles, you know, over the last 15 years, lots of them, like many technologies where there's, you know, bubbles and kind of interest explodes from a developer activity, from a funding activity, from a you know consumer activity. I don't know though how many more bubble cycles we have with like this bad of a user experience from a web three perspective, like we can kind of live through. So I think that like right now too is the time period where a lot of these need to be kind of figured out because by the next time there is a bull run and kind of a bubble starts to form again in kind of this space, I don't think people will have quite as much patience for really bad experiences and then and then for it to also 
implode like it always will of kind of cycles. Yeah, I just think that like the consumer patience will be much lower. I think you're onto something with the considering the financial versus the non-financial crypto world. The financial crypto world is always going to be dangerous. We're always going to end up with an SPF. If, if it's just about a gold rush and everybody's speculating and, and we're playing on greed, you're going to get this bad behavior every time. It's the one thing you can bet on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Greed. Yeah. It's going to happen. Ourselves. So for it to tip over into kind of long-term mainstream success, it has to be not about that. It has to be about actually making people's lives better, a, a killer app, something they're excited about. I was, as you asked the question, like, what, what would it take? I can't predict the future. So I tried to think back what put mobile in our hands and everybody says iPhone, but that's mm. not completely true, right? Like first we had Crackberries. And we, oh yeah. Yeah. And, the, and the, you know what I mean when I say Crackberry, like yeah. clearly they got people hooked on this thing. It solved some fundamental need they had starting with business, but then it stopped being about business, right? And then Apple was able to come in and make that leap. It was so, the, it was a brick breaker. That's what it was. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. So so what will that be in for this technology? Like will something get there? Mm. Like I think it's you gotta have to, you have to be open to the possibility that it, it doesn't. doesn't. Yeah, that's good for it. That's good um, point. because the financial stuff, there's the speculation that greed like sucks us all yeah. in when it comes, but that's where the winner will be. That's a good point. I, this is too simple of an example, but I love the idea of not having a stack of 100 papers every time I buy a house or refinance my mortgage. I would love to have that digitally or the title to my car. Even or the, the financial part. Yeah, I, I will tell you a story. So we, we moved the summer. We bought a house. We sold a house. We sold the house. You know, there were some proceeds from the sale and the title company was wired the money, but they wrote a check to my bank. That check took 10 days to clear. This is where the financial system, it's not about the speculation. You're just like, are you kidding me? I know you have the money because you wouldn't have let me walk out of here right. if you didn't get your money today. But now it's going to take another 10 days to clear and you're going to sit on my proceeds. Yeah. There's no good reason. For, like, the, and, then, and then we get wound up. Yes, we should have a better financial system. And then, mm. and then the, the bad behavior comes. But there are, yeah, there are a lot of really great use cases, even on the financial system too. Well, even to like, we're, we're also very lucky in the US too of like the security in our financial system, but like too, especially like this has been one technology. It's been wild, the like globalization of it. Like every day I'm on a call with somebody that doesn't live in the US, you know, and there's not been a startup or company that I feel like I've worked at where that is like the norm, you know, and this is just, it's become a very globalized international technology almost since day one. And um, there are lots of places in the world too, where just like simple like financial stability, you know, and access to payments and like in banking infrastructure, you know, is not as easy as it is here. And so there are like definitely like I see a lot of those kind of actual use cases too, like more on the financial side, obviously, but we don't feel quite as much here. But like you see them a ton in, in lots of other kind of countries. And it's, you know, those are game changing, you know, opportunities for a lot of those folks too. And like when you see those use cases, for sure. Talk about what led you here. Right. So you, you have a background in, in leading marketing companies or leading marketing for companies. What made you want to jump into this? I spent the last seven years at a company called High Alpha leading marketing there. We are, were, they are still when I was there. Obviously, we were a venture studio and we kind of incubated companies out of the venture studio. We would also invest in companies, but I was helping create the marketing programs for all these companies and, you know, getting to start lots of companies. And it was an absolute blast. 
And prior to that, had a, a marketing tech background in software, working in marketing at Exact Target, which was selling marketing tech software. And so, yeah, I've been a marketer for a long time. And I would say I've always wanted to start my own company and kind of been looking for the right idea, the right industry, or the right set of like co-founders to start a company with. And in 2020, into 2020, and then all through kind of 2021, I really just kind of red-pilled myself into crypto and like Web3 and, uh, you know, went down kind of the rabbit hole, fell in love with the technology, fell in love with a lot of the use cases. Like music was like a, a, one, a big one for me. There's like still performance rights organizations that send physical checks for literal sense, you know, to like, if you've ever, you know, recorded an album, you can get your album registered with these organizations. They literally send you a physical check for, you know, 10, 20 cents every time your song plays in a Starbucks, you know, it's, it's like those kinds of rights. And it's like that kind of thing of like, that should just be on a blockchain. Like that's a programmable, like royalty-based, rules-based system those payments should just be done digitally and, and all that kind of stuff. And so it's some of those kinds of use cases that like really drew me in. And I just kind of fell in love with the communities around it, kind of how people were using this technology again, just to like do wildly innovative things with how you engage with assets, you know, and digital goods and digital assets. And so that that's what like I fell down kind of that rabbit hole and then started to realize this like gaping hole around marketing. None of these businesses had any kind of sophistication in their marketing and how they engage with consumers. It was like participating in the ecosystem as an end consumer. And, you know, I'd buy an FT project or join a community or be engaged with a brand. And like the message was on Twitter or Discord and it was megaphone style shouting into the ether, you know, treating everyone the same. And that was kind of like the unlock for me of like these companies have no way to manage these customers and your customers wallet address, yet they have access to my entire financial history of like my on-chain activity. Why are you not marketing to me based on the things I've done in the past? You know, and that's like a holy grail for a marketer in web two to like have access to my entire credit card, you know, history report and be able to send me, you know, really relevant advertising based on the fact that I buy a new pair of running shoes every six months, you know, just like things like that. And so that was kind of what for me on the marketing side, it was like, there's an opportunity here that kind of completely changes how we think about marketing and advertising and reaching consumers and how to build a more transparent kind of marketing universe and ecosystem. And so that was, I think, kind of what drew me in and kind of my background in marketing and marketing tech and startups and then kind of this passion for Web3 kind of just, you know, all kind of fell into place there and end of 2021. And then I officially kind of my first full-time day was April of 2022, near the absolute peak of kind of crypto markets, which was yeah. which has been an absolutely fun ride over the last 18 months. I, I want to come back to that. So as a marketer turned into a startup CEO for marketing tech, like I got to imagine there are some unfair advantages and there are some pitfalls that go with that. You can talk about that. Some of the unfair advantages for sure, like, and we, we try to lean into this as a brand of like, we're marketers first, like, we get it. We've used, I've used every single marketing platform there is under the sun. We still, you know, we're HubSpot customers personally, you know, at Holder. And so there's like, there's a lot of, of that too, of like, we understand the ecosystem, how marketing tech has evolved over the last 15 years, who the major players are, how those businesses have been built. You know, we started the company out of High Alpha's Venture Studio too. And High Alpha was started by Scott Dorsey and three partners. So like very deep background as well in marketing tech. And we have a lot of their 
those are our superpowers for sure. You know what I mean? Because like we have a lot of that that we can kind of lean on. I think some of maybe the pitfalls are like we can oftentimes, especially like in more the product side, maybe go down the kind of like what's comfortable, you know, in terms of like how we build out a product or what we want the user experience to be like or how things have always been done in marketing tech. And so we kind of balance this line of like, don't reinvent the wheel. Subscription preferences have been around for 20 years. You know, we don't need, do we need to like really reinvent an entirely new way to manage subscription preferences? Or, you know, versus like, this is an entirely kind of new technology. How do we lean into the new technology to like make what what might be a 10x better experience that kind of actually is like the differentiator? Those are definitely some some kind of pitfalls and, and trade-offs. Being more B2B SaaS kind of marketing tech experience and background, you know, and focus for sure. I'm imagining, you know, every idea generation session, every grooming of the backlog has to be a really deliberate experience. Like, are we really thinking about this in this context as opposed to the context we we all know so well from? Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it's due to how do people want to use this product, build these experiences, engage with customers today? How do we think they will tomorrow? And then like, what are some of the use cases in the same way? Like no one thought that we would have 5G in our phones. You know what I mean? Like when BlackBerry was around. Um, and so like, you couldn't think about the fact that like, oh yeah, I want to consume short form video, you know, that's instantaneously, you know, available on my phone. Like no one, you know, you, you weren't kind of thinking about some of those use cases 10 years ago. And so there's some of that too of like, what are some of the use cases that are kind of unknown to us because of technology limitations or because of just how consumer adoption or whatever? And how do we make a flexible enough platform that can grow with all of those? But how do we also have guardrails there too? And yeah, it's really difficult for sure. It's really fascinating because you're like wrestling with a lot of the same challenges that I think a lot of founders that were like subject matter experts in the business that they're creating. And at the same time, you're stepping into like, not necessarily a new vertical or new category, but maybe a new technical category that is still, it's the wild frontier to both of your point. We don't have no idea what this is going to end up looking like 10 years from now. It's kind of exciting. And I would imagine you've had some moments over the last 15, 16 months where, oh crap, what's going on? Or maybe some, some horror moments, maybe not horror stories, but horror moments. Anything like that come to mind from the journey so far? There's definitely a lot. And, and just even to double click on what you said earlier too, I think it is like, oh, it's a new vertical for me, like professionally, but also like most of the people we work with, it's also a new vertical for them. You know what I mean? Like this is also like all emerging for them. You know, maybe they have like a year more experience doing this. You know what I mean? But I think kind of we do get some of that benefit of like everybody's just kind of trying to figure it out too. Like our customers are also just trying to figure this out. And so I think there's some uniqueness there, you know, which is also kind of makes it, it's not like we're stepping into the healthcare vertical that, you know, it's been around, been around for a long, for a long time. time. There yeah. are, you know, precedent and things like that. There's kind of just, there's no playbook too. So there, there's some interesting things there of like, we're trying to kind of write it, you know, as we're building it for sure. And I think too, yeah, over the last 18 months, it was since we started the company or whatever, definitely in oh, September-ish of 2022, the SBF moment. Oh, uh, like, yeah. You know, we had just started to go out for our first round of funding, like literally the week before FTX imploded and, you know, and everything with SBF happened. And so that was definitely one of those moments of like, you know, crypto have been having a hard summer, you know, but like, I would say up until that point, like investors that were interested in Web3, like we're still investing for sure. And that, that was the moment where it was like, 
either they just lost a lot of their money, literally, you know, through like the FTX debacle, because some of them custodied their money there. And I think they have a lot of it back now. But, you know, there was like that kind of moment to like, also like there was zero funding, you know, really for, for Web3 and kind of crypto after that point, you know, in kind of, you know, always like 2020 hindsight of could there have been better timing, but, you know, we lived to see another day. And so, yeah, it's been good. And I think all of that's made us resilient, which is what you want as a founder and as a startup and a startup team. And I think too, is paying off greatly now. I think when we look back at like, we've been building for over 12 months, I guess, yeah, it's just about 12 months that we like had a product in market, you know? And so like our feature set, our product is very robust now too. You know, depending on your use case, you could replace HubSpot with Holder now, you know, especially if you were like a Web3 native company, then we're nowhere near like feature parity, but especially like if you're looking at like more of like Web3 messaging side of things, like we can kind of get pretty much as far. And so there's a lot of like benefit of us just kind of being here building and kind of building for scale. I think we've learned too from a lot of the the challenges in kind of a a down market. Though also like it's been a down market for every, you know, fundraising and and you know, new customer development has been hard for every startup and every tech company in, in business, I think. With, with maybe one asterisk, months. generative AI. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Unless you're open AI. <laughs> yeah. Or NVIDIA. You know, yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yep, that's true. Well, I this is a lot of fun. I like I said, I continue to kind of try to learn a little bit about this world and it's always informative and a little it's it's what is it, Dunkirkers Dunkirkers? What is the name? The law, the learning curve. Like the more you know, the more you realize that you don't know <laughs> half of what you think you know. Whatever that's called, there's a law. It's like a big bell curve. Anyway, it's a lot of fun for me. So I appreciate you spending some time to tell us a little about you and Holder and teach me more about Web3. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was an absolute blast and loved getting to chat about all things Holder and all things Web3. (laughs) 